This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, spy novelist David McCloskey on the truth and fiction of life inside the CIA. I knew that if I wrote as an analyst some kind of badass analyst story, um, they would have just thrown the book away. I, that wasn't going to fly. You know, the third book, there's, there's sex scenes with Putin. And so I was like, you know, if, if this guy's doing this, I mean, I could have a meeting with Assad and, and be on somewhat safe ground. David McCloskey, welcome to Chatter. Shane, great to be with you. Glad to have you here. Um, so your novel, your first novel, which is out now, Damascus Station, is about a CIA operations officer serving in Syria. You were an analyst at the CIA from 2008 to 2014, focused on a number of countries in the Middle East, including Syria. So there's overlap in the subject matter, although your protagonist is an operations officer in the field and is a different kind of job than you had. And we'll talk about that. But I'm curious, did you decide while you were working Syria issues at the CIA that this would make a great subject for a novel? Or did that decision to write about it this way come later? It, it pretty much came later. I, I don't think I ever had the conscious thought when I was there that I wanted even to write a spy novel or to write a novel, to be honest with you. And uh, I certainly, I think in the, the sort of mental frame that I was in when I left the agency after having worked Syria for a number of years, particularly those last three years, really as the country sort of fragmented and shattered mm-hmm. with the civil war. Like I, I wasn't really interested in, in writing something that would be published about it. Certainly not a spy novel. So it, it was something that came later and uh, it really was born out of a lot of the writing that I did, which was really just kind of a personal exercise for me when I left the agency where I was kind of thinking about what I'd seen and lived through and uh, writing in a way that, you know, the agency doesn't really allow you to write, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. emotional character driven kind of stuff. It's the opposite of the analytic (laughs) writing that we do. And so, you know, I was, I was really interested and and found that I was um, enjoying kind of thinking through and processing emotion through writing. And I think the desire to, or even just the the seed of like, Hey, maybe I could turn this into something that would be published that some, someone else might want to read that came out of that process um, in a really a three or four month period after I left the agency when I just started to write. I realized I enjoyed it. You know, I realized that there were pieces of it that I might be good at. And so the idea was kind of born there to turn some of those experiences into a novel. But it wasn't something I was really thinking about when I was actually at the agency. Did you find when you weren't writing as an analyst, which you write, it's it's a very straightforward objective. It's kind of not unlike journalism, I suppose, in those ways. Were you like at home journaling or did you find your mind just thinking through things more as storylines just to try and process what you were dealing with at work every day and, and what you were studying? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I found that there were characters that came to mind that were, um, you know, sometimes real, like you know, as I was, as I might write, I might use a real first name or, uh, you know, write down something that had actually happened. But then in other cases, there might be kind of composites of, and this is actually the way that a lot of the Syrian characters in Damascus Station were born was kind of thinking about 
people or different groups of people that I had, I had spent time with or analyzed when I was at the agency and uh, to kind of create a character that took on some of the perspective and emotion of, of that group and to try to give that person life and voice through the, through the writing. Um, it, it was, a, I think, a way to deal with having watched a country devolve into civil war and all the, you know, the horrifying things that that can entail. Um, and, and I think it was a desire on my part to, I think at the time kind of disassociate myself a little bit from the, um, largely unproductive policy conversations around it. And that I just wasn't at the time interested in having anymore. Uh, and to try to think about the story, uh, through the eyes of actual people and to, to bring some kind of voice out of, out of that chaos and that pain that, that, um, you know, felt, felt true to the real life emotions and the humanity that was on the ground. I, I was more interested in that at the time. And I think as the book sort of, you know, became more real and took on the real, you know, momentum got created by the writing. I think that the, uh, you know, the desire to actually put some something of that that you might call a plot into it was became more top of mind, um, and that you know necessitated some thinking about the policy from an intelligence standpoint or from a you know sort of strategic standpoint about Syria. But that yet came much later. It was really the grounding of the book and my my desire writing it was to to tell stories through the eyes of actual people that that lived through this stuff. Yeah, and it's it's really. I mean, I I felt that actually some of the most vivid portraits in the novel were of the Syrian characters, and you know, and, and which was surprising because usually we're used to seeing a spy novel like written from the point of view of you know the American spies or the British spies if it's set in MI six, but you really made this choice to portray all of these different groups of kind of these factions within Syria, within the government, the religious divisions, the kind of internecine conflicts. And it it struck me that, you know, this was, if you were somebody, just an average reader coming cold to the subject of the Syrian civil war, your book wouldn't actually be a bad way to introduce people to the dynamics that were that were preceding it. Um, and I mean, and it seems like you evinced a lot of sympathy for so many of these people who they're really complex characters. Did, did you have an opportunity as an analyst to spend a lot of time with individual Syrians or were you sort of more studying like regime figures remotely and opposition figures kind of more remotely? Yeah. I'd say it was some of the former, but more of the latter. Right. Mm -hmm. So because you're kind of at headquarters in your career and sort of on the receiving end of all of this Intel being gathered by the people in the field. Yeah. I think that's, that's the right characterization of the, of the preponderance of my time, although I did spend a lot of time in the region and I did live in Damascus for a while. Okay. Right. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. And so there, there, I'd say it was a combination, but you're, you're right. I mean, you know, a lot of the work you're doing as an analyst, I mean, heck, even when you're in, you know, on TDY or PCS in a foreign capital, you're, mm-hmm. you're a lot of the work you're doing, the analysis is at arm's length, right. Sort of by virtue of, of, of the the stuff that you're looking at, right? right. Um, so so that's true. Uh, but I felt like by the time I had really started to to write, when I had left the agency after I'd left, um, you know, I, I felt like there were uh, there were characters I had in my mind that were sort of reflective of real Syrians with whom I had spoken or who I had analyzed 
um, you know, at, at a distance that that were true and real, even if I kind of, you know, change names or, or you know, make up an institution in Syria, because after all, it's a novel and I had to have a little bit of fun. But, sure. um, you know, I, I felt like there were, uh, you know, I, I wanted it to feel real uh, and, I, and I wanted it to feel like. I wasn't like it wasn't a fictional Syria, even though obviously it is, but that that there was enough of of the real Damascus, real Syrians, real events from the war, such that you could kind of get into the book. And even though I want, you know, hopefully the thing that's making me turn the pages isn't the education on Syria. It's sort of a, a propulsive narrative and the characters and what's going to happen. But as you get to the end, hopefully, you know, the reader kind of says, "Oh wow, like I I actually have some sense for." not just what happened in this conflict, because you may not really get that from the book, but like how it felt to kind of go along the course of the first few years of that conflict from different perspectives. I think that that was something I was very interested in doing in the book. When you were writing as an analyst and writing about Syrians and about these 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 individuals that were important to policymakers for an audience of policymakers, could you do anything that allowed you to try to get into their mind? I mean, you obviously you're not going to write an intelligence report the way you would write a story, but right. did you have any room to try to paint them as more three-dimensional individuals and think about motivation in a way that you would as a novelist? Yeah. I'd answer that in, in two ways. I do think that a lot of the work you're doing as an analyst is requiring you to get into the head of the government and the people in that government that you're that you're looking at. And so mm-hmm. you're you're sort of, you know, I mean, one way to look at at what I did was for six years, I'm sort of explaining um, the world from the standpoint of, of you know, the Syrians, the Syrian regime, the Syrian opposition, I, I'm I'm explaining to the president and other policymakers what they're doing and, and importantly, sort of why they're doing it. What is the thing that's motivating them? Because, um, you know, the sort of traditional structure of an analytic product would be, you know, you've got the there's a what and there's a why and there's a, a so what and that kind of what and why are forcing you to really grapple with uh, grapple with someone else's motivations and and their historical context and and their desires. And when you're talking about a regime like Syria, that's being driven by a very small, you know, the policies are being driven by a very small group of people. Um, you're really talking about a, you know, sort of like getting into the head of your extended family to some degree, right? As as terrifying as that that might be for for many of us, um, and and it's not that you um, it's not that you don't apply. I mean, as an analyst, you're obviously not applying sort of a value laden or moral lens to this stuff. But as you watch what obviously the Syrian regime is doing during the war, you're explaining it. Um, but you're not justifying it, but you do have to understand why it's happening. And so I think, I think for, as an analyst, you're sort of, even though the type of writing you're doing is very bureaucratic and sterile and anodyne, you're forced to really grapple with why another set of humans are doing something. And, and that I think is really, you know, at the heart of uh, how a, a storyteller or novelist is going to create character. Why, yeah. what's motivating this person? What do they want? So you, you have to, you know, you have to do that. So that's kind of one, I think two, as just a sort of interesting side note is that at least when I left the agency, we were starting um, on the analytics side, we were starting to get a little bit more creative with uh, the products that we created uh, for for the president and others. So 
you know, <clears throat> I remember um, writing a couple things or at least being part of a couple products that were created that were like not just a standard president's daily brief or what's called a wire world intelligence review. That's, you know, what, why, so what, but you might look at something like um, a journal and like almost writing, imagining a journal entry or a diary from a foreign leader to explain in the first person why they're doing the things that they're doing. Or for example, like I think one of them might've been, in advance of a, a presidential conversation with some leader in the region, sort of imagining that leader's, you know, personal diary leading up to that and how they might be planning for the meeting and what they're hoping to get out of it, which is a way of um, making it, I think, easier for the reader to sort of connect emotionally to your point with what that foreign leader is hoping to get from the conversation, what they might hide during that conversation where they might try to deceive us. But it's kind of, I think it's a more creative way that gets a little bit uh, away from this kind of stereotype of, of writing and closer to something that's like a novel that would have more emotional resonance with a, with a reader. And hopefully you hope that they retain it a little bit better, um, you know, if it's, if it's being written in that way. So did you ever write any journal entries from the point of view of Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president? <laughs> I actually, I never did. Um, I never did. You know, we did, we did some re kind of red team type stuff where you, you'd write something um, that's a little bit more like, I don't know, outside of the box or, or from, from the Syrian regime standpoint, we did do that, but I never did. I never had the pleasure or the, maybe the, uh, the chore of writing something from the standpoint of Bashar al-Assad's journal entry. I think that would be a terrifying prospect actually. But, but you got to play with this in the novel. I, that's true. That's true. And, and you know what? I, um, I, I debated for a long time whether I would have the actual Bashar al-Assad as a character. And um, I just couldn't, I didn't want to initially. Um, mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to in include him, but I felt as I got more and more into it that writing a book that's trying to deal authentically with the Syrian civil war would have to, he would have to loom in that story in, in, in some way. And then as I got into it, I realized I kind of had some fun because I could, you know, and not to give too much away, but I could give him a near death experience mm -hmm. and I could kind of poke some fun at him along the way. Cause I think he obviously richly deserves whatever he gets. So I did end up enjoying it, but initially I was, I kind of wanted to keep him at arm's length. It's so interesting to hear you you debating the reasons why you did it, because as I was reading the book, when he suddenly pops up, it's, it's initially, it's jarring, like, whoa, wait a second. Like it's the actual president of Syria and now he's here. And the reason I actually, I think that you pulled it off is because he could so quickly just like devolve into like caricature or you could just have him sort of like saying very formal sounding proclamations and things but he's like working on his laptop and he's distracted and he's kind of a prick you know and he suddenly seems very real because he's doing mundane things and it kind of had this weird effect of disarming him to where it was like oh he's a vivid character like all the other ones he just happens to be an actual person yeah. so that little bit of like um, just sort of, you know, basic sort of humanity of him, like working on the computer and being distracted sort of made him seem not like a larger than life figure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, um, I have to admit, you know, one of the things I, I, about 
I think I was probably 80 to 90% of the way done with the first draft when I came upon Jason Matthews' Red Sparrow trilogy. Oh, yeah. And uh, at this point in the first draft, I actually didn't have... I think I was working on some scenes with Assad, but I still was... I was not certain what direction I was going to go. And I tore through... You know, those Red Sparrow books, I just... I love them. And, um, I, you know, I think... I've tried to do something similar to what what Jason did in terms of bringing kind of the real CIA to life a, a bit, and and you know the third book there's there's sex scenes with Putin, and so I was like you know if, if this guy's doing this, I mean I could have a meeting with Assad and and right. be on somewhat safe ground. You know I'm not um, I'm not quite as brave as Jason was in what he decided yeah. to do with his his authoritarian leader in those books. But after I'd read those, I was like you know what I'm going to give this a, a chance and uh you can get away with it it worked out hopefully (laughs) how was it as a first time and we should talk about like you know if you have been a fan of the genre but how was it as a first time spy novelists reading the work of other spy novels did you find it inspiring did you find it intimidating uh you know what what was that like i mean some writers might want to say like don't show me anything i don't want to be influenced or i don't want to be psyched out by somebody who's done it like in his case multiple times so what was that like for you in terms of how you absorbed other writers. Yeah. Well, so I'd read the genre for a really long time. I, um, you know, I mean, as a kid or, or things that are sort of close enough into the genre, right? So, I mean, as a, as a kid and teenager, I read most of Le Carre. I read a lot of Martin Cruz Smith. I read all the Clancy stuff back in the day. Um, you know, as a college student, I think I got introduced to Charles McCary, sort of. A, yeah. Not so well known, but but should be much better known. He's sort of up there with Lacare yeah, yeah, in terms I agree. of literary sensibility and appreciation. Yeah. Very much so. And so I, I felt like I, I had I had some kind of grounding in the genre and just really enjoyed it even before I ever thought I might join the CIA. Uh, my dad reads the genre religiously, and so that sort of got passed down to me. Um you know, I think when I actually joined the agency I, for a long period of time in there, I didn't really, I didn't really read much anymore in the genre because, uh, you know, after about two days at Langley, you kind of realize that none of it's even close to real, and that starts to bother you more, uh, even though it probably shouldn't, because all of this is, you know, so much of it is is just it's wonderful entertainment or you know, in, in like a McCary or a Le Carre, they're sort of deeply character driven and the espionage is almost a little bit in the background, right. Mm -hmm. Um, To some, to some extent. But so I kind of went, I went through this period of time where I was like, I can't really read too much of this. And then I I got Mm -hmm. out and that, that started to change again. I, I, I got back into it. And um, you know, as I was writing, I honestly have always felt like I just need to always be reading uh, some something in the genre, things outside of the genre, in order to keep myself sort of engaged and and inspired. I mean, I, I kind of I take Stephen King's point that to be a good writer, you've got to write a lot and you've got to read a lot. And so it feels yep. if I'm in the middle of a project, um, I want to be reading as much as I can because I think it all sort of jumbles together. You you find interesting ways to move plots forward. You find interesting characters. You find new words like it's all I feel like it all just sort of feeds the the writing um I think you know to your question more specifically though when I'm when I was writing Damascus Station I think I would sometimes read a book in the genre and I would be extremely um uh sort of depressed because you're like I could never 
do this. You know, uh-huh. I, I can't possibly get to this point. And so it's sort of discouraging. And then, you know, two weeks later, you'd be reading something else. And without saying any names, you kind of read a book and you'd be like, I could do that. You know, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. I, like my book's better than this book. And so I feel like there was kind of a um, weird bifurcate, like almost like you'd read a book and you couldn't kind of help but compare your own attempt with what this author had put down on paper. And sometimes that was encouraging. Other times it was extremely discouraging. But I think, uh, you know, I always kind of came to it with the understanding that I had to be reading a lot in order for, you know, in, in order to be able to write well. And um, I think that that's, and also outside of the genre, right? So I think just just reading spy novels or thrillers and all of that, like, I feel like that would kind of be a narrowing thing. So I always try to have something on my nightstand that's that's yeah. Different. You you mentioned a couple of times the, the question of, you know, the CIA being accurately portrayed in in novels and several retired CIA officers, both have said this publicly, and I've talked to some of them too, have praised your book for its accuracy. I mean, they specifically point out things like the tradecraft that officers are using, the surveillance detection routes, which I think like ops op, op, ops guys just love it when somebody gets these details right. <laughs> you know, even like down to strange details about CIA office life, like that, yes, there is a hot dog vending machine, you know, in the basement slash ground floor of the headquarters building. So how important was it to you in writing this book to write accurately about the CIA and the work that it does? It was really important. I I felt, you know, so, so many spy novels or, or thrillers, um, they've got a protagonist who, you know, is doing extremely exciting and, and in real life, extremely illegal things by the second page. And, you know, there are loads of fun and I read most of them and, and really enjoy them for what they are, but they don't get anywhere close to the, to the real CIA. And I think as I started to sit down and write about it, I thought, you know, a lot of the work that the agency does in particular on the op side um, it's dramatic, but it's in a, it's in a very different way. You know, it, it's less someone driving around with, with, you know, a gun and killing people. Uh, it's more dramatic from sort of a, a human standpoint. And, and what does a dance around recruitment, agent recruitment look like? You know, there's the, you mentioned the surveillance detection routes. I think as I, you know, spent a lot of time talking to, former case officers, as I was writing the book, you realize how much of a mind game these things are and how tense they can be. Um, and and they're also extremely kind of slow burn and, and they can be very drawn out and elaborate. And so it felt like there was some real meat here to work with to get high concept drama into the book, but also to make it, you know, at least grounded in, in some realism around not just the operations inside the CIA, but also the bureaucracy and the processes, which I also <laughs> had a lot of fun with because, you know, yeah. those are fairly Byzantine in many cases. And uh, I felt ripe for, uh, ripe for someone to sort of pick on or, or call out, you know, the, I think in the book, I mentioned the, the 13 hour layover rule and not getting business. Yeah. Class. So there's little things like that, that are true that I worked in there that are sort of weird aspects of life in the secret world, hot dog machines, another one. But it was really important to me to get it right because I think from a, maybe a deeper level, I do feel like in, in a lot of, uh, you know, sort of popular, in a popular mindset about the CIA that's largely fed by Hollywood, spy thrillers, 
you know, leaks uh, to, to the press, whatever it might be, or just very real scandals and sort of, um, you know, public dressing downs that the agency has gotten. I, I think the actual, a lot of the real work, and, and by the way, it's not to minimize that stuff, right? But but it's to say that the real work of the agency, I feel like is kind of minimized in there. Like people don't really know what, like, what do you see officers actually do? Um, and I, I wanted the book to be able to, to shed some light on that in a, in a fun and hopefully sometimes funny way that, you know, it's a, it's a real place populated by real people. It's doing important work. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's moral code is, is more about the search for truth than anything, which is this weird paradox because it's place sort of cloaked in deception and secrecy, but most officers there, be they analysts or case officers or whomever, are really deeply invested in finding the truth and, and telling that truth to, you know, people in our government who are making decisions. And I think that that sort of, that is the heart of it, you know, and uh, I, I just don't think a lot of, a lot of novels or, or movies are really kind of capturing that. So I wanted to, I wanted to try that. Yeah. And I think that that distortion that happens in fiction in your right, it happens all the time. It's more routine. Your book is the exception that's actually portraying the CIA as like what it is, which is like a big company in many ways. <laughs> right. With yeah. like Byzantine business travel rules and the rest of it. I mean, I confront these kind of misperceptions a lot as a journalist where, you know, people will either have two big misconceptions. One is that the CIA is somehow omniscient and superhuman, right? Yeah. They know everything and can do anything because that's what they've seen in movies. And they're always three steps ahead of everybody. Um, or they are more sinister than they actually may have been in the past, right? They're secretly controlling and manipulating the world, and they're doing it for nefarious ends. And these are all tropes that have been handed down to us and informed you know, through fiction. And the reality is, I mean, yeah, there are some superhuman feats and there are some sinister actions and activities in the history, but it's a much more... Um, uh, it's a much more routine kind of environment probably than most people would understand. People go, they go to work there every day. They work long hours. They have to follow all kinds of rules. It's super annoying. There's petty office <laughs> politics. The food sucks. And and, you know, and, that, and it's interesting. I think that maybe the one reason why novelists have kind of eschewed that um, portrayal is because it's inherently not as interesting because it's not exotic. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and you, but you're, you've kind of like found also the way to, you know, when you set the story against a war that's about to break out, um, you know, it, it kind of, it, 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 it maybe amps up the interest. Your, your protagonist also, we should talk a little bit about sort of, you know, maybe how much of you there is in your protagonist, but he does something without giving too much away in, in, in the novel that actually is very much outside the bounds of work for a CIA officer, yeah. which to be clear, you are explicit about this up front, which is that he becomes romantically involved with the woman who he is recruiting to be a spy for the agency. Um, you know, huge, huge no-no. It's also one of the things that usually annoys the hell out of former CIA people is that they, you know, they're always saying like, you cannot use sex to coerce a source. It's not allowed. So why did you decide to to introduce that complication, um, which is kind of one that like, you know, we're used to seeing, right? I mean, right. It, it works. Don't get me wrong. But like, what made you decide like, yeah, let's have him do this and like, and also break this cardinal rule, um, even though, as I said, you're completely clear from the outset that he's breaking it. Yeah. Well, one of my friends and, and former colleagues, John Seifer, has wrote an article. You know, it's probably almost two years old now. That's basically, you know, like here's the list of things that Hollywood 
the sort of tropes that Hollywood always layers on to spy stories that, you know, yeah. are completely insane. And um, I, I, <laughs> I read that, you know, when I was writing the book and I, I counted out, I mean, I, I broke a lot of the rules. Okay. Like, yeah. you know, uh, one of them, as you mentioned, is is case officers romantically involved with with their agents, right? That is, um, it's not it's not the kind of thing that you just sort of get a slap on the wrist for, right? I mean, it is like career ending type of uh, mistake, right? Um, yeah. But I felt like, um, you know, it does happen, and it has happened, mm-hmm, and, sure. and so there's some kind of grounding in reality there. It's not this totally made up thing. Um, and, and, and more importantly, you know, I, I wanted to kind of build this foundation of the real CIA tradecraft, real CIA kind of procedural, right. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Allow myself because, you know, it's, it's a novel, um, to to be able to selectively kind of jump off that platform of authenticity into, um, things that would make make the plot, make the characters more interesting, ratchet up the tension. And I felt in this case, like, I, I guess one, when you, when you already, if you strip aside the romantic aspect of the relationship between a case officer and asset, it's already really an intimate thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's very, you know, the asset is, is putting their life on the line to, to do this. They, like you as the case officer have this knowledge about them. And oftentimes also about their whole, you know, their family history, their their motivations, their addictions, their their what kind of financial shape are they in? Like all this really intimate information that very few people actually, outside of a family, even or maybe even, you know, uh, families don't share this much. Like would would have about somebody. So it's this extremely intimate thing. There's this layer of kind of manipulation around it too, where. The case officer is ultimately in this relationship because we're trying to extract information from this person that will help us make better decisions as a government. But there also is, in at least in the most productive relationships, a very there can be a personal bond that develops and a mutual respect. And you know that's not always the case, but in in many long term productive assets, it is. And so you already have this really interesting relationship, and then it kind of felt like you just supercharge the thing by taking romantic love and attraction and layering that on top of all of it. Um, and so I, I was really, I felt like that, that created so much potential energy from a character motivation standpoint, from a plot standpoint that uh, it felt like too good to not, not explore. And so, you know, you're absolutely right. This is something that's been done many times in the genre, but it felt, you know, probably for good reason because it just creates so much yeah you know intrigue and so much drama that as a as a writer trying to how do you move this thing forward in a way that's going to keep people interested it's you know it's a it's a great way to do that yeah and especially because he's written you know the character the protagonist sam is risking his career by doing it and the reader right. sees that so it creates another layer of tension how much of this dynamic between source and asset did you understand when you joined the cia very little, yeah. very little. I, I mean, I think when I joined, like many people, you kind of don't really know, you don't really know what the CI does um, at the end of the day. And I think I, I learned a lot of that just on the job and in spending time. I mean, look, I'm an, I'm an analyst, right? I'm not, I was not a case officer, but 
I spent a lot of time with them in their natural habitat and got to have conversations with them about sources and, and how they recruited them and what motivated them. And, and that, you know, that was real, that's really helpful because it, I wasn't, I, I wasn't relying on spy fiction or movies or even just, you know, nonfiction accounts of what this relationship can be like. I was talking with people who had had these relationships for 20, 30 years. And, um, it, it, it was, uh, it was, it all had to be, it had to be learned on the job. I think very few spy novels really even tried to do the recruitment thing right, or even close to it. Um, the one, the one that I think was, was kind of helpful was, um, look, Hooray's little drummer girl, because that mm-hmm. does a pretty good mm-hmm. job of, you know, it's got the romantic piece between the, the Israeli handler and, and, um, you know, the, the English actress, but, that does a good job of kind of showing the intrigue and the, the manipulation and, and what that can kind of look and feel like, I think, I think better than, better than most, but almost, almost all of it I had to come to through just conversations with case officers and former case officers who were willing to talk in general terms about kind of what it felt like to recruit people and be in those relationships. Did it surprise you or did it, did it put you off? Did it feel, because it is, a, it is a kind of deception, but it's also a form of building trust. Yeah. You know, honestly, not really. I mean, I I think that for me, um, I kind of look at it like these, most of these people are actually making a choice. To, they're making a choice to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to, 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 to spy or to, to yeah. spy? Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're mm-hmm. making that, that choice. Now, the case officer is doing things to encourage that and to sort of draw that decision out. Um, but we don't, we don't play like the Russians do, you know, we don't blackmail people or honey trap. Like we don't do that kind of stuff that really feels like you're not, you're sort of making the choice for them or, or blackmailing them directly into doing it. You know, the agency is, is at least in, my experience and, and, and my sort of knowledge of of how it how it works. I mean, we're we're not behaving in that way, and so I I tend to see it as more of a free kind of choice that someone is making to to do this work. Um, and you know, in 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 many of the cases, I mean, the human sources. There's a lot of human sources that are out there that aren't producing a lot of great intel, but the ones that are are producing stuff that's you know, not replicable by any other collection means. And so it's extremely valuable to us to understand what's going on inside these governments and to have that insight. And so you got to kind of come at it from both of those standpoints. I say, look, on the one hand, you know, we're, we're sort of engaging with someone in a decision that they're making that they can choose to not make. Um, and then on the other hand, we, we really do need this information, I think, as a government to make the best decision. So I, I never really, yeah, I think, I think you sort of wrestle with the fact that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're stealing information from a foreign government and giving it to our government. And so when you look at that, you talk about stealing things and, and, uh, that, that aren't yours, you know, there is a, um, I think a, a reflection you have to do on, on whether or not that is, right and, and, and moral and, and whether you want to be part of that business. Um, but I think I've, I've done that reflection and feel like 
the CIA is a, uh, for all its warts, is an essential institution. I think that espionage is an essential um, function of our national security apparatus. And so I kind of look at it from that from that standpoint, rightly or wrongly, but that's how I come at so it. So how did you join? How did you join the CIA? You know, I got recruited as a um, an undergrad intern. Actually, I'm not sure how well, really? yeah, how well known that program is. I think it's much smaller now than it was, um, you know, in 2006. But the the guy who ran what was then known as uh, NISA, the Near East and South Asia uh, Analysis Office, he was a uh, an alum of my undergrad institution, his little college outside of Chicago. And he, what's it called? Uh, it's called Wheaton College. Okay. Really small liberal arts school. Uh, I grew up in Minneapolis so I was a Midwesterner. And, uh, you know, he and, and, and Nisa kind of came through Chicago every year because the University of Chicago has a great Middle East studies program. And when he came through and I was a, a sophomore, um, they, they stopped by my school for like, you know, talk to an international relations class, have lunch with a few of the students. And, you know, I think as a 19 year old kind of hearing that pitch, you're like, wow, you know, that, that, that sounds pretty interesting. Right. Sure. I mean, um, at that point, you know, I, I had in high school, like I had traveled overseas a bit and, um, you know, but I was really interested in doing that more living overseas, learning how the world actually worked. And so, you know, I was, I was pretty interested in that. So I, I took my, you know, I think like many college kids who are applying for internships, you sort of like, oh, I'll never get it. So I'll just apply and see what happens. And, um, you know, I t- ended up taking my first polygraph, the full lifestyle poly at 19, which is an interesting <laughs> experience, uh, to say the least. But was that um, pretty intimidating? got through and um, did two summers there and, and got the full-time offer to come back after I graduated. Um, and, and when I was uh, an intern, I was working on Syria. And when I joined, I, I worked on Syria. So they just, they, they, they pretty much like plucked you right out of uh, right out of school then. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, um, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of hiring the agency does where you're looking for specific language experience or you're looking for specific, technical expertise or someone who's like, you know, they wrote their, their PhD on, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin or whatever it might be. Like they've got this kind of unique experience. I think there's another subset of the hiring, um, that, that is they're looking for, you know, young, uh, talented, you know, uh, people. I'm not sure how I slipped through that crack, but you know, they're looking for like people that they can, bring in and, and teach on the, on the job and get mm-hmm. them, get them kind of young. So I got, I got in young and I, and I really was hooked after those first couple summers. I ended up working on the, the first summer was the 34 day war between Israel and Hezbollah, which I had the opportunity to work on. And then the second summer was the run up to the Israeli strike uh, on the Syrian nuclear reactor at Al-Kabar. And so it felt, you know, again, as a 19 and 20 year old, like, wow, this is, I have the full security clearance. I'm here in the building. I'm working with the team. You know, they, they don't, they don't sort of dip their toe in. I mean, you're, you're on, you know, I had my own desk. I was writing yeah. stuff, you know, I, obviously people are watching you to make sure that, you know, you don't screw anything up, but um, they really, they really invest a lot of, uh, you know, give, give you a lot of responsibility to, to see if you'll be good at the job. And uh, so- it was a lot of fun. So you go off, you, you spend summers in Virginia yep. working on um, wars in the Middle East, and then you have to pack up 
go back to college at this small school <laughs> outside of Chicago, uh, where I presume you can't tell your friends anything really in detail about what you were doing. So like, what's that conversation like when it's like, hey, David, how did you spend your summer? Yeah, it's a short conversation uh, <laughs> and and not a very fun one for most of the for, for the people on the receiving end of that. I, I think that, you know, it was you kind of felt cool while it was happening, right? Because I would think they that was, was pretty cool too. Yeah. You know? Um but yeah, it's a pretty short conversation and uh and one that you can't I mean you just can't say a whole lot. But uh I I just found that the I found that the work was so was so fascinating and it just probably wasn't in my nature, even though I've now written a, a book, it wasn't in my nature to feel like I needed to be having those kind of long conversations about what I did or what I was doing. It was kind of nice, actually, because it meant that people knew you, they couldn't ask you questions about, about work and you could just talk about something else. Um, so for a while, I was pretty effective at that. Um, so it sounds like they recruited you, the CIA recruited you to be an analyst. Um, <clears throat> was there ever a point where you thought you might prefer to go the route of operations where you would be the one out there recruiting the agents to spy. And obviously you said you worked, you worked in the field too. So it's, it's not as though like one is a desk job and the other is not, but they're distinct career paths. So did you ever think about going the operation route versus the analyst route? Honestly, I didn't. Um, I got married pretty young and I did not. And I watched with tremendous respect and still do and humility this the, sacrifices that case officers make um for the job you know and it really is more of a life than a job um i didn't feel like that was going to work for me and for my wife and i I think i knew that right away um and i honestly i felt like i would i was better and and would have been better as an analyst i think that was my my skill set and so i never really seriously entertained it i also kind of grew up in the agency at a time where I think, I mean, I, look, it's, it's changing. I think the, those two funnels are a little bit more fluid now, you know, people can kind of move more easily between them. Um, that was starting to be the case when I was there, but I was never like, for example, the, the training program that I uh, took when I joined, which was five months was called cap CAP, the career analyst program. So mm. you were, this isn't like, hey, we're going to teach you how to be an analyst and then you might be able to apply that somewhere else. It's like literally in the title is like you are a career analyst, you know, and mm-hmm, that's how they mm-hmm. frame it. And so I think the mindset was like, hey, these, you know, these silos are not you don't you don't switch. That's that was starting to change at the tail end of my time there. But um, there was never any kind of and I and I knew analysts who had gone to be gone on to become oper- operations officers. Um but uh, but it was it was uncommon and, and from a bureaucratic standpoint, uh, let's just say it was not it was not encouraged or facilitated. So why did you decide then to make your protagonist an operations officer rather than an analyst, which is a job that you probably understood more from personal experience? Yeah. Well, I am. Um, I think despite the the great line from the, uh, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's actually in the Clancy book. But I think it's in the sum of all fears. And I, I remember it from the, the Ben Affleck version of the sum of all fears, you know, where he's sort of being 
handed a gun by the director and they're going somewhere. He's like, but I'm just an analyst, you know, it's like, well, that never happens. And (laughs) the life of an analyst, uh, while it can be quite interesting, I think is not particularly well suited to a dramatic, uh, intriguing (laughs) novel. And so I think, I never it's a very diplomatic way of saying it's a yeah, boring yeah. job. I, mean, I have some analysts <laughs> in my book, yeah. you know, but they're they're third tier characters that are kind of there to um, add something to the story. They're not driving the story forward. I just, right. They're kind of facilitating feel, the plot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure I could have like created a version of a uh, an analyst who's kind of like becomes an operations officer over the course of the book or something like that, but going back to your question around like I was trying to was I trying to deal realistically with the CIA I was and so I kind of felt like that you know even though I'm sure every operations officer who's read the book has sort of rolled his or her eyes at my case officer falling you know in love with his asset um, I knew that if I wrote as an analyst some kind of badass analyst story um, they would have just thrown the book away after (laughs) so I, I wasn't I, that wasn't going to fly. Um, so I had, well, clearly I, they liked it because like half of your blurbs are operations officers saying right. like, this is the most realistic book about spying I've ever read. <laughs> right. No. And, and um, I honestly had a ton of fun talking with those uh, mostly guys, uh, yeah. few, few ladies about the, about the work um, and, and getting to know what their job was like. I actually probably learned more about the mindset in particular, um, researching this novel than I ever did when I was. Oh, that's interesting. It. Yeah, just because it was, it was, I was asking different questions when I. Yeah, there. you don't sit around talking to your colleagues about their mindset so much. You're just doing the work, right? right. You're, right. It's different yeah. when you're asking them, "Let me interview you as a writer." Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that was, I, and I really, the more I did that kind of thinking and research, the more I was like, "Yeah, you know, a case officer that would be a that's an interesting protagonist." So how much of you is in Sam Joseph and your protagonist? I mean, you're both from the Midwest. Zero. Yeah, the Midwest, okay. Fair, fair enough. That's the only thing, the Midwestern, you know, Minnesota connection. Um, yeah. I, I, I really, you know, a lot of, I, I'm sure a lot of writers get asked, like, how much of their protagonist is them. And I think, you know, for, for a lot of writers, I'd have the suspicion and I've heard some of them say, like, hey, oh, yeah, there's a lot of me in the protagonist because protagonist is doing the job that I was doing for years. And, you know, um, I, I think it, 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 it makes a lot of sense in some cases, but honestly, for me, I don't, I don't think a lot. And, and the reason I say that is because when I was, you know, there, there must be some, right. Just cause that's, that's the way fiction works, but I really built his character and, and most of the other characters starting with composites of real people that I, that mm-hmm. I knew. And so in, um, in Sam's case, there are three case officers uh, whose names I will never divulge and must remain a state secret for, for all time, uh, who, who I sort of thought of as I was writing his character. And, uh, you know, I, knew, I spent time with them. I'd heard stories about them. I heard them tell me stories. You know, so I kind of took those three people and started to, to write him as a composite. And then I think over time, he kind of took on his own energy and, and, I ceased thinking of him as I wrote uh, as a composite of those three people and more of as his own person. Um, but he started that way. And so I like, I don't think that he has too much of my, you know, DNA in him at the end. 
I know you said you won't reveal their names of those three people who make the composite, <laughs> but do they know that they're the composite? No, no, I don't. I, yeah. I have a, uh, and it's the same with Proctor, Artemis Proctor, the, the chief yeah, station, the station chief, yeah. the sort of wildly profane and colorful character. Um, yeah. Same thing there is a female case officer that I, I knew and I just, I thought her mannerisms were perfect for she seemed she seemed too good to not be based on a real person, which is not that any discredit to your imagination, but there were just so many things about her that I thought this is somebody he knew clearly. Yeah. This is like Yeah. She's Well, uh, yeah, they'll all sit around playing the guessing game by the way, saying like who's who in this book. It's, it's what always happens in a spy novel. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I'm sure they will, although I, you know with with Proctor in particular, I would say she's probably the character that I I would consider her to be my alter ego in the book. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Why is that? Because you don't present this particularly like uh, profane. I don't think you have tattoos or no, anything. Like, you no, may, but... I, I have no tattoos. You know, I, I generally am a pretty uh, buttoned up dude, I would say, which is why I think I had so much fun with her character because she's maybe uh-huh. a version of, uh, although I'm sure the CIA psychologist would have a field day with this admission on my part. Um, but <laughs> I, I just loved how... I, so for whatever reason, she just kind of started to jump off the page as I yeah. wrote her and there would be scenes that I would, I would go into it and I would say like, I'm going to have Proctor do this. And then you realize, and it's sort of a weird way to describe it, but you realize that she was actually going a different direction as, as you wrote, like she had so much energy in that way. And I think that for me, that the thing that I love most about her is that, and she kind of just says what she thinks for the yeah. most part. And she's very, um, while she is a good case officer, she's very much sort of outside of or not beholden to a lot of the other bureaucracy around around the job. And so I think, you know, as someone who lived in that bureaucracy, as someone who spent a lot of time talking to people about it for the book, I, I, I think I, I liked thinking about her character as someone who's kind of unchained from that. And so I think, my alter ego in the sense of, you know, if you just sort of let it all fly, um, that's, that's where you get as a, you know, five foot tall, curly haired, you know, pretty rabid, uh, CIA case officer with a shotgun in her office. So it was, she's, she's a lot of fun. It's also, it's the one part in the book where it really does feel a lot kind of like it veers into action movie territory in one (laughs) scene. And it's like, you know, she's the one driving that. So it seems like you've had a lot of fun, with her as a character and she does <clears throat> she does jump off the page and in, in ways that some of the others uh don't as much uh as I a, that. yeah that's great so i'm curious so you, you you were a cia analyst for eight years then you went to work for mckinsey for another yeah. eight years which is sort of like a consulting analytic thing now you're a novelist so these are you can find parallels between all of these jobs but it's like you know these are three fairly distinct career paths so like, what did you want to be when you grew up? And are you finally doing it? Or is there like some other career that you think you want to try before you settle on it? <laughs> Gosh, that's a great question. I I think when I was like in elementary school, I think I gave some kind of silly answer to that question, like an astronaut or something, but it sure. became pretty clear. And that's what I wanted to be too. So right. Every, everyone wants to be an astronaut. And then also <laughs> by the time I was in middle school, I was both uh, very tall and afraid of heights. And so, you know, think not, not only could I not get into, you know, any kind of spacecraft, but I would be terrified during it. So through sure. that 
out the window. And, um, you know, for a long time, I just had no idea how to answer that question. And I would say, I don't, I don't really know what I want to be when, when I grow up. And, um, I actually think maybe to some degree, the progression of those choices has, has been because I still unable to answer that question. Um, you know, I joined the CIA, like I said, pretty young, I had this kind of ill-formed idea, although not wrong that the agency would be this sort of you know, um, horizon expanding experience that I, I would get to see the world and learn how it worked. And I think, you know, it, it, it met those expectations when I left and joined McKinsey, it was because, you know, I'd kind of gotten to a point where I thought, Hey, you know, if I stick around for a few more years, I'm going to stick around. And up to that point, you know, my only private sector experience, uh, had been at Wendy's at working as a cashier. <laughs> Uh, in high school. And I was, you know, I, I kind of had this thought of like, there's a whole world of, of business out there and people doing things that aren't working in the government or working in intelligence. And I'd like to learn how that works. And, but I had no idea like what, what company or sector would I even be interested in? Like I had absolutely no clue. And management consulting is a good way to see a lot of different things quickly. And so you know, that, that was the appeal of McKinsey was like, oh, maybe my next step is into the private sector and, and maybe McKinsey will help me figure out what that looks like. And I think for a while I thought like many people leave McKinsey and they go work at a client organization or if you, you know, I did transportation and logistics work at McKinsey and you say like, oh, you kind of build up this expertise in this field and then you go and take that to a company that works in the field. Um, you know, during my time at McKinsey, I ended up writing a spy novel and not really wanting to leave and go into, you know, to my clients or to any company in the sector that I was working on. And so I, I realized as I was writing the book, I really enjoyed it. I actually liked just the inputs of sitting down, writing the stories during the day. Like that process to me was um, engaging and energizing and I had a lot of flow. And so I was like, well, maybe if I can find somebody who would pay me to do this, that would be a pretty good place to end up. And so I, you know, I think didn't find an answer in the corporate world and I'm taking the plunge on writing. And I think right now, um, I just, I, I found, I think probably the closest thing I'm going to ever find to where I'd want to end up. How long did it take you to write the book? I mean, if you total up all the, I mean, there's obviously there's the act of writing of the book, yeah. but then there's the drafts that maybe yeah. you put down for a while. I want to say that it was something like, nine months yeah that's fast yeah it, it was it was pretty fast um it was nine months and it was amazing at how much of that so i i would say 90 yeah maybe 80 percent of the of the final version was written between august and the middle of october in 2019 so almost all of it was was written in just a, just a few months because it took a while to kind of get it moving and to, to excavate the characters and, and the story. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was it was it was probably nine months. Although, kind of COVID hit in the in the middle and there was like a pause and I was back you know in an eighty plus hour a week consulting grind for a while before I could come back and do some rewrites. But yeah, it was, mm -hmm. it was probably nine months. Uh, Were you writing it on spec without having any publisher in mind, or did you had you talked to a publisher who said, "Yeah, you're an ex CIA guy. Go write a book about the CIA. We might be interested." 
I had early on in the process, just through some connections that my wife had, I was in touch with an agent mm-hmm. and he and I had some pretty high level conversations about what I was writing. And, and I showed him a few chapters and, and he said, look, when you're done with the book, send it to me. I want to read it. Um, like, so I, so I got to skirt around the kind of formal agent querying process and all of that and just kind of go directly to him, which was, which was great. And so he, he read it, he liked it. Um, and then we took it to publishers in uh, February of 2020, which turns out was a really bad time to, to try to sell a book because <laughs> two weeks later the world shut down, but I, I didn't have a, I didn't have an um, editor or publisher in mind, but I, I had this agent and that, that was helpful because like early on, you just kind of obviously don't know what you don't know. And, and trying to translate what you're, you know, you're sitting down in front of a computer for eight hours a day, sort of creating a fictional world to then the actual commerce of getting the thing sold and mm-hmm. what's, what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, he was, he was really invaluable into kind of bridging those two things together. And yeah, exactly. Cause an, an engine also <clears throat> gives you somebody to be, to be writing for, and as right. a writer, you, you, it's helpful to have a deadline. It's helpful to have someone who expects that they're going to see something. He must have also said to you that your background as a CIA officer was going to be a big selling point yes, in the book. A hundred percent. And I actually, as, as maybe silly as it is to admit this, I don't think I fully understood that when I started, started the process. I How so? When did it dawn on you? Uh, probably after the first conversation with him um, mm. and, and a few and a few other um, people who were sort of in the in the industry, um, it became. I, I think, I, I just don't think I fully understood how important it would be to driving every piece of the process, mm-hmm. from obviously the writing to getting blurbs to how do you do the sort of marketing and promotion once it comes comes out. Like mm-hmm. that's been really a backbone of the whole thing, which, you know, obviously is not now surprising to me, but I think his insistence on, or, you know, and I, honestly, I think those conversations were sort of helpful for steering me toward like, okay, well, let's try to do the CIA as it kind of really is. Because, oh, interesting. Um, kind of that's your value add in a sense. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Um, that's, there, there aren't, there are plenty of former CIA people writing, but there aren't that many that are doing this kind of novel. And, mm-hmm. and I think that was sort of an interesting thing to him as we started the process. Well, I think, in, you know, in, in, in just from a pure marketing standpoint, right, the, the book could have been not very good and it probably still would have been sellable because of who you are. And people would have been reading it to say like, oh, well, let's just see what life is like yeah. inside the CIA. Uh, but the book is good. It is well written. I mean, one question I have for you is this is your first novel. I assume it's your first real attempt, disciplined attempt at writing fiction. So how did you learn how to do it? Because you did it well. It's actually, it's a properly structured novel. It is a propulsive plot. Like it's, it's, it, it works. So how did you, did you study this? Did you read books on writing to figure out how to do it? I, um, I have a general suspicion about books that are trying to like, like self-help kind of writing books that I think maybe it's not always helpful, but I just generally stay away from them. The, mm-hmm. the couple that I read, the one that stands out is I, I read Stephen King's On Writing, which I think almost sure. all yeah. of us have, even if we're yeah. not writers. Um, but most of what I did was I just read a lot, a lot mm. when I was writing. Um, 
to try to understand how how authors and sometimes so from a plot construction standpoint i would kind of look at and i went back and looked at books that i'd read 10 years ago when you're just reading for pleasure and you're not thinking about this like how did they put that plot together (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. how do they make choices about their characters what are the things that really drive the, the the narrative forward um with some uh you know some authors that that you know, can write prose that's that I really respect. I mean, look, Hooray is obviously probably among the foremost in the genre. Sometimes I'd actually sit down with my notebook and longhand, like just write down his sentences to see how they felt um, hmm. and how they moved. And, but I honestly, you know, I also made a ton of mistakes in the, in the drafting of this thing. Um, you know, <clears throat> overblown florid purple prose was like that abounded in my first drafts and had to be, you know, expunged by few readers that, you know, read really carefully with that in mind to help me get yeah. rid of it. My editor at Norton, um, when he read uh, a version of the manuscript sent back, literally mailed me the hard copy with his comments in the margins. And he had whole, paragraphs highlighted and crossed out with just extreme, you know, it was a very, very wonderful feedback. A lot of it was very profane and it was helping me. It was like, you know, there was nothing positive in that feedback at all. Right. It was Gun everything punch. negative. Um, but I feel like that, that process helped like kind of helped me also become better at it, but I made a ton of, made a ton of mistakes writing one-on-one mistakes early on. And I think, some of them I was able to catch in my various, you know, drafts. I mean, and there were probably 15 drafts by the time it was done. Mm-hmm. Um, but then a lot of it had to be caught by, by others. But I like to think I at least had set up some amount of structure around the people that would read it and the comments that they, I wanted them to give me so that I wouldn't have a readership kind of using kid gloves on, on the manuscript, but they would be able to go and look at the writing, which I knew, you know, to your point, I don't have, any training in it at all. And I'd never done it before. I thought that was probably going to be one of the weaker areas. And so I tried to find people who would kind of help me improve it along the way. And did their comments make sense to you? I mean, when you come back and say, this doesn't work because X and you say, Oh yeah. Okay. Now I understand because I can see how a finished book is written and how this is not that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I, um, (laughs) I had a, a college friend of mine who's a wonderful writer um, read a version of it. And I was explicitly, I explicitly said, look, I want you to highlight or cross out, you know, any, any language you find that's sort of overwrought or, you know, so he did that. And then he caught a, a bunch of stuff and, and, you know, he was like, he was basically like, look, there's two ways that you could get rid of this, right? One of them is you can just, as you're reading, you can think about whether, what you're describing actually happens in the real world. Like, do people mm-hmm. actually think about things this way? Or is this, is this an actual description of something that makes sense? But the easier way is sometimes if you think something's nearing that kind of prose, read it out loud to someone that you, like, just read it out loud. I like, read it out to my wife. And a couple of times you do that and you'd be like, this is really stupid, you know? But it, <laughs> it, it, for some reason as you're writing, it seemed like it would make sense and it kind of worked on the page. But then as you said it, you're like, oh, this is terrible. And, and that was actually, as I'm writing the second book now, not a sequel, but it, writing another one, that's been a helpful way is I'll actually might, I might 
I'm sure the people at the coffee shop that I write at think I'm insane, yeah. but you might sometimes read something out loud and you're like, yep, that's really stupid. And you need to come up with a different way to express this. That was yeah. a useful exercise. And your second book's going to be about Russia, right? It is. It is. Um, it is looking at, basically looking at the question of what what might the U.S.-Russia spy war look like if we really got serious about um, sticking it to Putin, to put it a little bit mm. colloquially. Um, Interesting. So I've been having a lot of fun with that. It's been, I think in some respects, a tougher a tougher process just because I'm learning a bunch of new content, right? I, yeah. They don't have a... Are you looking more, so you're looking more into the future? So yeah. This isn't a, yeah. Yeah. This isn't like going yeah. back and rehashing recent history. Right, right. So in that sense, it's different from Damascus Station. It's kind of, the book is going to be set in the present day looking forward as opposed to what's really like 2011 to 2013 in Syria. Um, right, right. Yeah, it's a little bit. Better. So on the subject of editors, by the way, as a former CIA employee, you would have, of course, had one editor you would have had to go through before you could publish the book, which is the Publication <laughs> Review That's Board. Right. Um, everybody has to submit whether you're supposed to submit op-eds, but you certainly have to submit book length projects. Um, and of course they go through this for reviewing if it has any classified or sensitive material that can't be published. It's not a, it's not a, it's not an editorial, uh, review so much as like pure content review. So what was your experience like with them and did they cut anything out? You know, it was pretty easy actually. Um, I, I had, they did cut some things out. Uh, but nothing that was like whole chapter storyline, even whole paragraphs. I mean, it was specific words or descriptions. They said, hey, this is going a little too far, but it was pretty light. And I like to think that it's because the book was so fun to read, but they got through it in like five days, you know? Oh, wow. Um, so they got back to you that quickly. Yeah, back to me in five days. Yeah. Um, From the point of submission? Correct. Wow. Uh, like I said, maybe You're lucky. they had maybe maybe a spy novel, you know, really enthusiast picked it up and just tore through it. I don't know, but they, I, I had done a couple. So I had also I had applied my own filter and said there's some things that I just can't and shouldn't put in the book. And then I had also I think I had 250 to 300 footnotes in there that showed okay, here's where I got this thing. Uh, it's from this book. It's not from WikiLeaks or some kind of leak you know, classified information, but it's, you know, it's, it's from this, there's a whole bunch of like, for example, uh, uh, you know, Syria books that are out there in the open that are written by, you know, not, not former agency folks, but just, you know, academics and, and journalists that I could kind of point to and say, Hey, this fact comes from here. Uh, and so you, it's not coming from my classified thoughts about Syria or the things that I read when I was there is coming from, it's coming from here. So I, I was able to source things in a way that I think made it easier for them to um, just say, yep, that's, that's good to go. So, you know, they, they were pretty, pretty light with me. Now, if I'd been trying to write a book about, you know, my experiences at the CIA, that's nonfiction, that would have been a very different story and it would have taken them a lot mm. longer to go through it. But they were pretty, they were pretty quick with this one. The, the thing that I think is wonderful about the publication review board though, is that I don't, I don't know what computer program they're using, but I, I sent them the manuscript, you know, and it's in a word document and it's probably in times new Roman or something like that. And the, the scanned version you get back, the whole thing's capitalized. Like everything is capitalized. So I don't know what macro it's got going. Wow. Everything's capitalized. 
it's in a font that looks like, you know, it got ripped off of a typewriter in 1965. And the the objectionable words and phrases are literally blacked out with a black highlighter. Wow. They tell, you know, it's, they're not like offering you suggestions on what you might replace it with. It's just, nope, you know, go find, go find some other word to use here, some other description. So it's a, it's kind of got this fun vintage, like Cold War vibe to it, which I always enjoy when I get uh, PDFs back from them. But, but overall it was a very easy professional process, um, which is probably surprising given it's like a, you know, it's a big bureaucracy and, this mm-hmm. would be the part of it that you would expect to move very quickly, uh, but but it did. Did your reviewer provide any additional editorial comments, like at the end, like "Hey, love the book"? Or no, like, uh... no. And in fact, in fact, I wrote back and I to to the person because they like CC, you know, the whole PRB on the on the note back. Yeah. I just wrote back to the to the person and said, "Hey, what did you what did you think of the book?" <laughs> and um, I never heard back. I don't think they can say. <laughs> I, I don't think they're allowed to yeah, write anything else because I'm sure someone you know would take that as like a CI blurb or like endorsement of the book. Right. Uh, if, if they did that, but I, I, I never, I never heard back from them, unfortunately. Maybe they'll post an anonymous review on Amazon. Yeah, tanking the book. One star <laughs> had to review this for a three letter agency and it sucked <laughs> then, you know, <laughs> read it in all caps, not improved by new font. <laughs> yeah, um all right last question on uh chatter as always of course comes from the chatter box which you Ooh, can see yes. have right here uh, uh pre pre-written questions i'm going to select one randomly from the box if you were here you could do it but uh, imagine that you're reaching in and i'll ask you this question Ooh, ooh. Okay, well, this is an interesting one. We haven't. This may be one of the heavier ones we've had. Uh, if you could convince the president to take one discrete action today related to national security, what would it be? Oh, geez. <laughs> You're the CIA director, David. You're the national security advisor for no, one day. No, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just a, a spy novelist now. I can't, I'm not qualified to answer that question. <laughs> Um, well, you're imagining you're imagining a future in which uh, we get serious with the Russians. So maybe it's uh, okay. something. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess other other than a, a bulk purchase of Damascus Station for <laughs> uh, as a training manual, that's right. as, a, as a training manual. Yeah, exactly. There's a real national security imperative there. I'm sure we'll find it. Um, so I'll, I'll go with a Russia related answer because that's where my head is right now, given the, mm-hmm. the, the book that I'm working on. Uh, I think that the president, and I think maybe director Burns, who I believe just traveled to Moscow may have started this process, but, um, mm-hmm. because I have no knowledge of what he actually spoke about there. I'll, I'll riff with this one. I think that, you know, as I've looked at the Russia relationship, um, over the past couple of years, it seems like uh, the Russians are sort of poking and poking and poking to see what they can get away with, um, mm-hmm. you know, be it um, bounties in, in Afghanistan, the directed energy program, uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, it, it, it meddling around in our obviously uh, political system some of the reports that have come out about, you know, reconnaissance, um, network reconnaissance they're doing in, in some of our, you know, energy infrastructure, like these kind of things. Um, they're, they're sort of 
poking to see what they can get away with and, and where there will be a response. And I think that uh, the president and the national security team need to actually describe clearly for the Russians what the response or the consequences will be for some of these things. Yeah. Um, and again, maybe that's happening, but I think that there's a saying uh, that I think is, I think it's a Lenin saying that, you know, you stick the bayonet in and you kind of, you know, if you hit mush push, you know, you just mm-hmm. kind of keep, and if you hit steel withdraw or something like that, you just kind of push and push and push and see what you can get away with. And I think that um, we've got to do a better job at actually articulating, okay, if you do these things, this is what the response will be. And then actually follow through on it. So that's, that's a long winded answer, but I think um, I, I would, I would, the discrete action would be having a very clear sort of menu of responses for the Russians for the very provocative things that they're doing. I won't ask you to give away any, but is this given that your next book is sort of imagining what happens if we take the gloves off? Are you developing a mental menu yourself of what that might look like? Yes. And I, I actually, um, a few weeks ago was, 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 I was writing the scene. Proctor reappears in this book. Okay. Um, is Sam Joseph in it again or no? Uh, I can't don't have to say, don't have to say. I won't say. Huh. Yeah. Proctor, I'll say Proctor's in it. Um, and, uh, and she, there is a scene that I'm writing where she's down in the sit room mm. in her own sort of Proctor-esque way, <laughs> listing out this menu of options because the agency is in the book. Is, there's been a, a memo written by, by Russia House about different covert action options and sort of, you know, what are the options? What, you know, what, are the, what are the benefits? What are the potential Russian responses on and on? And Proctor sort of synthesizing this memo in a very mm-hmm. you know, colorful way. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and where they, where they end up landing is going after his money, Putin's money mm-hmm. as, as one of the, one of the options. So actually finding, finding where a lot of the cash is in all the, you know, the different sort of shells within shells, figuring that out and then, and then right. trying to, trying to actually take it instead of right. losing it. So that's the, yeah, it, that's where we land in the book. It might be the thing that he cares the most about. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of, there's a lot of different things that I think we could do that would bother him. Um, but as I had a, did my own research, had a lot of conversations with agency Russia experts and just kind of get at what's, what's the thing that would be most disruptive to him. It, it was the money. Uh, yeah. everyone kept coming back to that. Yeah. So yeah. I, I went with that. It's, it's sort of a, um, there's, there's sort of a heist kind of novel thread running through the book around going after mm. money. Yeah. Nice. When's it going to come out? Do you think? Gosh, that's a great question. I, um, I hope that it would be out, uh, in the winter of 2022. So, mm-hmm. you know, a year ish from now. Um, right. but I, I probably, probably got about like 80% of the way through the first draft. I need to finish it here over the next month and then go into the intensive the rewrite modes and 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 rewriting and all of that stuff so i'm hopeful to have it done in the next three or so months like done done and yeah. then uh and then it'd probably come out like a year from then something like great that. i will look forward to it yeah uh great david mccloskey thank you for coming on the podcast the book is damascus station people should check it out um this has been a lot of fun thanks for taking the time to talk to us no thanks Jane. This, was, this was a blast really enjoyed it thanks for having me on 
That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. <laughs>